Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 74 for the 2nd 3rd of May 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the true color of Mars. I've been on a bit of a theme lately, or at least over the last few months, with image analysis, but I do promise that this is the last one for at least a month or two. The claim for this episode is that NASA and other world space agencies, but mostly NASA, are secretly keeping the true color of Mars secret from all of us sheeple. The reason depends on who you listen to, with explanations ranging from just because they can, to because we'd realize that there's life out there, to uh, some reasons that you won't be able to understand, but I'll play for you anyway. The reasons vary, but the claim is specific, that the color of Mars is faked. You have to document specifically these extraordinary claims. And that's what this article does. It documents the claim by many people over many years that NASA has deliberately and with careful forethought on knowledge distorted, if not altered radically, the colors of the images of Mars it has presented to us from various spacecraft missions going back now, you know, some 25, 30 years. For this topic, I really have to start out with background information. The normal human eye is a tricolor detector with specific cells called cones that are sensitive to color. Some of the cones are sensitive to light that center around what we perceive as red. Some are sensitive to light that centers around what we perceive as green. The rest of the cones are sensitive to light that centers around what we generally perceive as blue. Let's then say that a pure yellow light enters the average human eye. The cones that detect blue aren't going to be triggered really at all by this yellow light. The ones that are sensitive to green will be triggered a bit, and the ones that are sensitive to red will also be triggered a bit. The human brain will then interpret that as yellow. If a purple light enters the eye, the red ones won't fire, the green ones won't fire, but the blue ones will a little bit. The brain interprets that as purple. Again, this is for a normal human eye and a normal human brain. If you're colorblind, blind, or have other eye issues or brain damage to the optical cortex, this may be different for you. Anywho, that's how we perceive color. That's also how most digital displays work, like TVs and computer monitors. It's also how some printers work. In the old school days of color photography with film and prints, it was paper that was sensitive to the different colors that the negatives were shined onto, and so they were recording that light. But that's not really important for this discussion, though it does get us one step closer to photos of and from the planet Mars. The second bit of background is calibration. If you're a visual normative human, which is the term I'll use now, your eyes and brain are color calibrated. They come that way, or they're developed that way. How you perceive color is not going to change. All of this was done in the first few years of your life. Your television, computer, and camera can change their calibration. If you're over 30 years old, you may remember the old days of cathode ray tube televisions and individual knobs for red, green, and blue adjustment. 
If the picture looked too green, then you could turn down the intensity of green. Same with red and same with blue. These days, the calibration on TVs and computer monitors is much better, and it stays pretty steady throughout the lifetime of the device, so it's rare that you have to go into the settings and adjust the intensity of red, green, or blue. I would guesstimate that most people never have and never will, but you can still do that with TV and especially with computer monitors and projectors. If you do, what you've just done is color calibration. Color calibration is done in many different ways based on many different things. The example that I just gave is what I would term winging it or fiddling with the knobs until it looks right. If you're a pro or a semi-pro photographer, then you'll know what white balance is. If you're a pro or semi-pro photographer and you don't know what white balance is, then you shouldn't be a semi-pro or pro photographer. Sorry, you just shouldn't. White balance is pretty basic to photography, and it's pretty much always set to auto on most cameras, and most people will never ever deal with it. Some will play with other built-in settings besides auto, such as tungsten light, or daylight, or clouds settings, in order to get the white balance to be estimated for different types and different colors of light. What all of those settings do is adjust the balance of red, green, and blue when you take the photo. Other people, such as me, will just shoot every photo on auto and then take them into raw image processing software such as Adobe Camera Raw in Photoshop, Adobe's Lightroom, or Apple's Aperture. In these professional software applications, you can very, very finely tune the white balance, in other words, the balance of red, green, and blue, until stuff looks correct. When photographers do this, assuming that they're going for a natural look, they adjust the balance until anything that was white actually appears white in the photo, as opposed to reddish or yellowish or greenish or cyanish or bluish or purplish or something in between. For example, let's say you take a photo of a bride inside of a building. Her dress will almost certainly originally be white, but in your photograph, it's probably going to look yellowish simply due to the lighting. In software, you can decrease the amount of red and increase the amount of blue and get the dress to look white. When you do that, with every other color, assuming that it was lit by the same light source, it should look as it did to your eye when you were originally there. The key point of this discussion is that we fiddle with colors all the time. And to make them look as true color as possible, meaning as a visual normative person would see them, we use anything that was white in the original image to go off of. If we don't have something that was white, then we try to use other cues, such as a green plant or a red rose, or our memory of something else from the original scene. The real pros, however, who have all the time in the world, will use a calibration card. A calibration card for photography is literally just a printed card that has several shades of gray, from white to black, and many different standard colors on it. The photographer will place the card next to or in front of the object that they're shooting, take the photo, and then remove the card and take the photo again. Then, any color adjustment they do to the image with the card to make it look like it's supposed to 
is also the same adjustment that they need to do to the shot without the card under the same lighting. For pro photographers, proper lighting and color calibration can take the bulk of setup and editing time. From one wedding I shot, I spent well over two to three hundred hours fine-tuning the color correction because there were four very slightly different colors of lights in the horrible hotel room that made everything a royal pain in the you-know-what. Now with the color and calibration out of the way, let's go one step further and talk about the red planet. And right there I mentioned color. Red. We've known ever since pre-recorded history that Mars is reddish in color. Many ancient cultures attributed it to their god of war because blood is also red. If you look at Mars with your unaided eye, again assuming no vision issues, you'll be able to tell that it's reddish. So right off the bat, we go into this discussion knowing that Mars is in the red range of color overall. And by range, this includes like orange and pinkish and salmonish, but not blue or green. Once telescopes got good enough that we could start to resolve Mars into a disk as opposed to a single point of light, observers saw that it wasn't a uniform color, but that it varied in places both in color and in brightness. Names of very, very large features are all based on these color and brightness differences from these very early observations. And now I'm going to repeat myself a bit because we have to talk about how we know exactly what color Mars is, or more realistically, the range of colors because it does change in color over time. In astronomy, when we want to very precisely measure the color of something, we have to calibrate based on something that's a known color, or a standard color. We also take pictures with very different filters and combine them into a color composite afterwards. Most astronomy detectors are gray. They don't record individual colors, we just put filters in front of it in order to get the individual colors. For more on that, head back to episode 48 on image processing. Across the sky, there are what are called standard stars. These are defined to be a certain brightness at different standard filter colors. So, what you do is you take a picture of those or one or two standard stars with your filters, and then you take a picture of what you want to photograph. Let's do an example to sort of walk through this. Vega is a standard star, probably the most famous standard star. Let's say that I photograph Vega using the standard red, green, and blue Johnson filter set. Now, first off, there are many, many, many different standard filter sets, the Johnson probably being one of the most basic and widely used. So I take a picture of Vega and I take it in the red filter, and then I take another photo of it in green, and then I take another photo of it in blue. Then I scroll over somewhere in the sky and I take a photo of a galaxy in red, then I take a photo of it in green, and then I take a photo of it in blue. Then, just to make things easy, I go into Photoshop and I combine the galaxy into a three-color composite, and I do the same for Vega. But when I do this, I see that Vega appears way too green from the standard that it's supposed to be in this filter set. In other words, my detector recorded Vega being the correct brightness of blue relative to red, but it was too green relative to red. So I calibrate based on what Vega is defined to be, lowering the amount of green until I get it to be what the standard calibration says Vega should be in terms of the balance of red, green, and blue in this particular filter set. 
Because Vega is my calibrator, I now have to make the exact same adjustment to the galaxy. Then my galaxy is properly calibrated. If you understood the previous discussion about photographers using white balance, then this is really the exact same thing. White balance is to normal photographers as standard stars are for astrophotographers and astronomers. Exact same thing, but we do it more precisely in astronomy, worrying about exactly how many photons there are at every single pixel. With that in mind, we can use this type of calibration for Mars. Photograph a standard star, and then photograph Mars, and you can figure out exactly the proper balance for your filters in order to be true color. When we do this, we find that the color varies somewhat over time. This is attributed to dust storms, wind blowing, seasonal frost, and various other things. The difference isn't major. It's not like it's changing hue from orange to green, but it is noticeable. And that's, of course, only if you're properly calibrated, and only if you're using the same filter set. If you just want to take a pretty picture, then you can combine the filters in whatever balance you want and change the hue to what you want it to be. Want it to be more salmon in color? Go for it. More of a rusty red? You can do that too. You're not using these for science, you're just making a pretty picture. This is also what we do for photos taken from the surface of the planet. From what I could find, every single lander that at least was from the US has launched with, effectively, a color calibration card on the lander itself. Exactly the same thing as professional photographers use. This allows people to properly know the balance of red, green, and blue, or whatever other filter set they're using in order to get the colors to appear as though a visual normative human were on the surface looking around. We also very precisely measure the color response of all of the cameras and all of the filters while they're still in the lab on Earth, and we can calibrate that way, but that doesn't account for if things go wrong or degrade over time. Knowing the color accurately is not only good for things like public outreach, so you can say, this is what it would look like if you were really standing on the surface of Mars, but it's also important for geologists. For example, in the One Geology Lab course that I took when I was an undergraduate, part of the lab final was to be able to identify 24 different rocks and minerals by sight, and also a few other things. For example, you could taste the salt. One of the first ways we did this was by color. Like, for example, plagioclase feldspar versus potassium feldspar. They look kind of the same, except that potassium feldspar is salmon in color, while plagioclase is more whitish or grayish. Obsidian, that's jet black and shiny. Or, say, the Phoenix Lander, when that was digging in the dirt back in 2009, it saw white material that disappeared in just a few days, indicating that it was almost certainly ice. All of this interpretation would have been much more difficult if we didn't have an accurate way to determine color. But there is one more complication. Well, there are actually many more, but this one factors into some conspiracies and claims. Cones in the human eye are sensitive only to a narrow range of wavelengths of light. We have yet to make an electronic detector that precisely mimics it, and there are often bleeds into other colors. For example, the Johnson blue filter that I mentioned earlier has a red light leak, as in it lets in blue light, no green, but then a little bit of red. 
Similarly, dyes that we use to paint things aren't perfect. Let's take the color calibrator on board the twin Mars exploration rovers. It's this one in particular that people point to for conspiracy mongering. The color calibrator has a stripe of paint that, to a normal human eye, was red. It has another stripe that's yellow, another that's green, and another that's blue. But, just like we can't get detectors to be perfect, we can't get dyes to be perfect. The dye used for the blue paint absorbs green and red, and it reflects blue, which is why to a normal human eye it looks blue. But it also reflects infrared light very, very, very well. Most cameras sent to Mars have an infrared filter that allows photos to be taken in infrared light. In that filter, the blue color tab will be lit up because it's reflecting a lot of infrared light for the detector to receive through that filter. So, if you do something like a three-color composite with infrared, green, and blue, that tab will be lit up, and it's a rather famous image that's used often online that shows a particular color composite where it's neon pink instead of blue. Conspiracy mongers will have you believe that this is proof that NASA is hiding or faking or whatevering something, when in reality, it's just because the kind of dye used to paint that blue stripe was also reflective in the infrared. So I've jumped the gun a little bit and let the background info bleed into the conspiracy stuff. Now let's jump in all the way. The idea that NASA and other space agencies have lied about the quote-unquote true color of the planet Mars has been around for at least a few decades, but it's really hit its stride, as with most conspiracies, in the past decade or so with the rise of the internet and people fiddling around with photos and not understanding what they're doing, especially when hitting that auto-color or auto-levels button in Photoshop or other image processing software. If you choose to do an internet search for true color of Mars, you will get a lot of conspiracy sites. There's even a Facebook page for a true color of Mars group that I just found today. The possible motivation is something that no one's really sure about, and I'll address it in a bit. The alleged evidence for faking the color all gets down to calibration, which is why I spent so long talking about how we calibrate color. It also goes all the way back to the old days of Viking. In 1976, the Viking 1 lander landed on Mars and returned the first color image from the surface. The story, as some people would tell it, is that the image showed up on a computer monitor or screens or something like that, and it looked as though it were taken on Earth, complete with blue skies. Then, a few hours later, someone went around, boosted the red on all of the images, and then the head of NASA demanded that the imaging team destroy the negatives from the image that made it look like Arizona, in other words, with the blue skies. This particular claim is one put forward by Richard Hoagland, among others. I don't know how much of this is really true, but I do know that at least part of it, that last part, is completely false. Remember that these were images that were sent back to Earth via radio signal after being developed on the rover, or lander. The data were sent back to Earth and reconstructed through a multi-step process before finally being able to be displayed on a television monitor or printed onto photographic media. There is no such thing 
as an original negative for Viking lander images, which right away makes the conspiracy part of this highly dubious. Assuming that the first part of the story is correct, I can imagine a very, very mundane situation. The person who did the final processing from the downlinked data and put together the composite just scaled the colors until they thought it looked right, and then they broadcast the image to the scientist and pressed displays. It was a few hours later when they got an image with an actual calibration in there, or someone went to the guy who was processing them and told them that no, based on the new calibration data or based on how they think scattering of light by the dust in the atmosphere should work, the colors should be redder. And because they changed, a conspiracy was born that persists to this very day. You know, it's just like the face on Mars, because the better images, the more modern images, don't show a face, then of course all of those are faked, and it's the original, low-quality version that's the real version. Other than the original Viking image that I just discussed, and the bright pink that should be blue calibration strip on the Mars Exploration rovers, that's really about as far as it goes in terms of specific claims for this topic, other than the general, it should look like Earth. There are numerous variations on this theme that I've seen and heard with conspiracy forums littered with them, YouTube videos, and of course, Coast to Coast AM with their science advisor, Richard C. Hoagland. Hoagland, in particular, wrote a two-part series on this for his website back in 2003, and he goes through a lot of what he says is the quote-unquote real calibration that quote-unquote should be done in order to prove his case. It's a bit convoluted, so I'll probably lose some of you in describing it. He starts with taking a few photos from an amateur astronomer with a Portuguese last name that I'm going to butcher, Cidario, although I know that that's much more closer to the correct pronunciation than Richard's. Richard Hoagland's pronunciation is Cidario. So he takes this guy's Mars photos taken over the course of three weeks, which all show the same color and claims that that is the true color of Mars. Because, of course, all of Cidado's photos are properly calibrated and taken over many, many years and show no variation. That's sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. He then takes those photos, and he manipulates all of the NASA ones until they match this guy's photos in color and contrast. And, because they're different from what NASA originally released, he says that NASA fakes them. Yes, I listened to Hoagland explain this for 40 minutes, and I listened literally at least four different times in order to make sure that I understood it correctly. I also read his pages to check on this again, and I'll link to them so you can read them if you happen to be very, very drunk one night with nothing better to do. There are so many things wrong with this. I'll just list five that I thought of while listening to him ramble. First, Mars color varies on timescales of months to years to decades, not in the space of three weeks. Cidaro's image sequence shows no discussion of proper color calibration, and Hoagland cherry-picked one other amateur's photos of Mars that's similar in color to claim that that is the true color. If you do an image search online for amateur Mars photo or webcam Mars photo, you'll get innumerable different variations of Mars color. Third, the color-sensitive pixels in the webcam that Cidado used are completely different from the filters of Hubble, and completely different from the spacecraft orbiting Mars, which are also all different from each other. 
four, Hoagland's example of nine different images from NASA showing nine different colors are wrong, because one of them is MOLA, the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter which is sensitive only to one color and was used to get altimetry, not color. The other one is black and white, so of course it's going to look different from the color photos. Fifth, photos he modified of NASA based on his calibration were never labeled as being true color or approximate true color. Perhaps most interesting, or almost as interesting, to this otherwise perhaps boring topic is why NASA would go to such lengths to do this. I've looked and listened around for this, trying to find what I considered a good reason, but I couldn't find one. For example, here's one from a forum post on the Godlike Productions forum, quote, I think they tamper with the colors to hide the truth to make Mars look very uninviting, barren and desert-like. On the same thread, another person wrote, quote, Why do you think the colors are actually Earth-like? Could it be because they actually are pictures of desert scenes from Earth? So I've found claims like, A, they want to make it look uninviting so we won't go there with people, which is one of the stupidest I've ever seen because no federal agency doesn't want money. Or B, they actually are on Earth and never got to Mars, so the conspiracy is that we can't get there and we're faking it. C, a modification is that we faked it early on and made the sky red, but once we actually got there and found it to be blue, we had to change it so that it stays red so no one knew we faked it early on. Or I've also seen D, just because they can do it, and so they do do it in order to keep the sheeple under control for some weird reason that somehow the color of Mars has to do with keeping sheeple under control. From what I can tell, Richard Hoagland at least purports to be a believer in that last weird reason that I think is conclusive enough to end the main segment with. If they've been lying about something as simple as the color, what else have they been lying to us about. Why would they lie about the color? Because if Mars, and this goes back to the whole Sumerian, Iraqi, Saddam, George ritual model, if there has been a literal transference of human beings from Mars in an incredibly distant era to the Earth, refugees who came from a dying civilization, and we don't have time obviously to get into why it died tonight, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there were records preserved of that transfer that we are Martians and a select few have been have had access to those records, have held these sacred texts as the most precious documents at the core of their being because they're documents that go to the heart of the origins of the human race itself. And if these people, self-appointed priests, you know, have formed a religion around this knowledge. Obviously, it would only be bequeathed to a chosen few. It wouldn't be for the many. It would be for the insiders or the elites, for the, the guys that somehow think they're better than the rest of us and that they deserve to know and we don't. There is no new news this episode, but there is a cue for Q&A. 
This episode's question comes from Johan S. from way back in August 2012. Of other numerous questions he asked, the one I'm going to address in this episode is his third one. How much dust is there at the ground level on Mars, and how fine is it? Is the atmospheric dust a bit like a sandstorm, or more like a forest fire smoke? Are there environments on Earth with similar dust, such as high-altitude deserts? The answer to this is both simple and difficult. Based on a list I found, typical dust sizes in Earth's atmosphere range anywhere from 0.001 to 1,000 micrometers, so a, a very large size range. This huge range of size is because on Earth, dust is made of many, many, many different things, such as spores and pollen, hair, skin, and smoke, just to name a few. Smoke from wood, in particular, tends to have grain sizes of about 0.2 to 3 micrometers. I found several different estimates for dust grain sizes on Mars, and the Phoenix lander back in 2009 actually imaged one grain to be about 1 micrometer. The numbers that I found generally estimate the average dust grain size to be around 1 to 3 micrometers, or microns, meaning that they are about the same size as the average wood-derived smoke on Earth. You can easily get smaller stuff, but because of the much thinner atmosphere, it would be hard to get stuff around 100 times larger, say, to stay in the atmosphere for any significant length of time. To really simulate it, though, you probably would need to go into a lab. Earth has a much heavier atmosphere than Mars, so much more large stuff can be suspended at once. You could go to the top of a mountain and get a bit closer to what it's like on Mars' surface, but it's still not very close. We have a lot more atmosphere. We also have very different gravity fields. On Mars, also, electrostatic forces play a larger role to keep stuff separated and suspended in the much thinner atmosphere. So, the simple answer is that probably no, you can't get a similar environment on Earth to get a real feel for the dust in the atmosphere of Mars. That wraps up the Q&A segment, and if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Or you could try tweeting me a very, very short one. That would be at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro. For feedback, there are two pieces this week, or this episode, this third of the month. Related to last episode's topic on image analysis from the live Skepticamp talk, Phil from Canada asked, or stated, I enjoy your podcast. I've listened to everyone so far. In the last episode, you said 99% of pictures people have taken of lights in the sky are lens tricks, and he's paraphrasing. My question is, if this is true, why are people taking the pictures? I am skeptical of a lot too, but they must be seeing something. Thank you in advance, keep up the great work. The answer needs to be prefaced by saying that the statement had two conditional clauses. One of them I forgot to mention, the other getting partially lost. I should have said something to the effect of, the UFOs that people point to as single bright pixels, 99% of the time are hot pixels. In other words, artifacts in the detector. UFO anomalies are much more complicated and much more numerous than just hot pixels, but that's one class that's pretty common. 
often people do see something in the scene and then take a photo of it, but that's not the kind of UFO photographic anomaly that I meant, and I should have been more clear. The second piece of feedback for this episode is, do you get lost? Once every few months, I get an email from someone saying that I talk at way too high a level, as though I'm talking to PhDs in astrophysics or optics or physics or whatever, and that I need to simplify things. After the last note like this, which came just a few days ago, I did an informal poll of the Facebook fans. Out of around 40 respondents, about 30 said that they usually understood most of it, while 7 or 8 said that it was 100% comprehensible. Now this isn't to pat myself on the back and ignore feedback from those of you who have issues. When I was a freshman in college, I swore that I would never, ever, ever forget what an average person's understanding of astronomy is. Unfortunately, that was a swear that I could not keep. That's why if you don't understand something that I've said, like Phil's example just a minute or two ago, then let me know. Especially if it's a critical point, please write in or leave a comment on the blog post or the Facebook link to the episode. I'll either get back to you in that venue, such as on the blog, or I'll discuss it in feedback during the next episode. What teachers say in school really is the case. If you don't understand something, chances are that other people don't either, and they're just as afraid as you are of being that one person in the class who raises their hand. With that in mind, it's time for the puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask an attempted critical thinking question tempted based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. Got all those attempts? There was no puzzler last episode. But this episode, with the main segment on the true color of Mars, the puzzler deals with, you guessed it, the true color of Mars. For this, I actually got two different possible puzzlers sent in, something that's never happened before. I chose the one from Donovan W. because it's least applicable to any other episode that I could do in the future. The other one I'll tuck away and hopefully use later. I did slightly modify it, so the puzzler for this episode is... Could scientists use the atmospheric measurements, looking at composition and particle size, to determine from first principles what the sky color should be? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it in two episodes and get more into the atmosphere, which I left out in this discussion because of the puzzler. The next episode will be an interview with a man going by the name of Harold Ormansky, and it will be about the case of a creationist suing NASA for religious discrimination. The episode after that, for June 1st, will be a clip show about Nancy Leader's understanding of astronomy, so if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send it in. There are no announcements for this episode, so... That wraps up this topic for the 74th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website. You can send me an email, podcast at sjrdesign.net. You could also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, 
or the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudoastric. That's tweet, not tweak. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, also tell friends, family, and several random people that you may never meet in real life.